This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. We all know that a lot of our health is predetermined by our genes, right? We know that we can generally improve our health if we eat right, exercise, and manage our stress. But how to do those things, of course, is a matter of great debate. A lot of well-meaning health programs are focused solely on weight loss or heart health. But what if there was another key to our overhealth, a second set of genes that could influence our weight, our mood, our long-term well-being? What if we could influence these genes by very specific and often surprising lifestyle choices? Well, the good news is that this second set of genes actually exists. It belongs to the bacteria that inhabit our gut, and it is vital in countless ways to our overall well-being. The details of how the microbial community, which is known as the microbiota, is hardwired into our health and disease are starting to come to light, and they are reshaping what it means to be human. Scientists are trying to unravel the causes behind all sorts of predominantly Western afflictions like cancer and diabetes, allergies, asthma, autism, and inflammatory bowel disease, and it's becoming clear that the microbiota plays an important role in the development of each of those conditions and in a lot of other aspects of our everyday life. We'll start talking about the good gut right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. My name is Dale Pazinski, and this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Justin Sonnenberg, who's the co-author with Erica Sonnenberg of The Good Gut taking control of your weight, your mood, and your long-term health. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's talk about, just generally speaking, first of all, how do you pronounce the word? Is it microbiota? Microbiota. Biota. Okay. Pronounce it, yeah. Okay. And what is that exactly? Yeah. So the microbiota in general is just the, the collection of microbes that's associated with the human body. Um, the, we are teeming with microbial life, and uh, most of it actually resides within our gastrointestinal tract, and that's the gut microbiota. There are okay. over uh, 100 trillion cells there, so more cells in our intestine than human cells that make up our body. So actually by cell number, we're more microbial than we are human. Yeah. Now, so I want you to explain this. this is, it took a little while for me to get this. I had to read the sections over and over again, and I was actually looking into some other gut stuff. But in some ways, some of the microbiota is a protective layer that keeps undigested food and all sorts of other, almost literally, crap 
uh, from getting out of your intestines into your bloodstream, right? Well, is that, it, it, it some, plays that role somewhat? to some degree, yeah. So it helps us digest food, certainly. There's actually a mucus lining that we actually secrete in our intestine, and that lines the gut and plays the major protective role. The gut microbes are more in the center or lumen of the um, gastrointestinal tract. They take up the, the center of it, and that they um, play many vital roles there. Um, digesting food is one of them, and I think that's really been the amazing thing with this field is that for quite a while we've known that these microbes are important in intestinal health and protecting us from pathogens that may pass through our gut. But what we're realizing is that these microbes in our gut are actually a control center for human biology. They connect to our metabolism, our immune system, and even our central nervous system. So there's really many signals emanating from this gut microbial community that's so, so vital for health. And so one of the biggest problems is you take antibiotics and you wipe the whole thing out. And there are, and you need to talk about this too a little bit, that there, there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. And you, when you wipe everything out, you're upsetting the balance between good and bad. And sometimes the, one, the bad ones are we're being in check by the good ones, and now that's not happening. And so you end up with C. difficile, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. And, and some other conditions, and you got to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. So, so we have this um, microbial community, and you can think about it a bit like a rainforest. There's just, it's, an, it's an ecosystem with many different species that are interacting. Um, there are viruses there that are attacking some of the bacteria, so there's predator-prey interaction. So it's this really complex, dynamic system. And when you hit it with antibiotics, you wipe out the community, and there may be some bad actors in there that are normally held in check by all of the good members, but when you wipe out all of the good members with antibiotics, some of these bad guys like Clostridium difficile can take over and cause really profound colitis. And so, you know, I think for many years, people didn't really see a downside for, for from taking antibiotics. It was just kind of viewed as something you do if you have, you know, an ear infection or a respiratory infection, and, um, and very few side effects. But what we're realizing now is every time you take a course of antibiotics, not only do you make yourself susceptible to these bad bacterial pathogens that can crop up, but you also really take out um, this community that's performing so many vital functions and communicating with, with us in so many mm -hmm. ways, and that's a big problem. Well, you talk about, I think, I can't remember the exact statistics. You'll have to straighten me out on this, but I think it was something like 70% of people who are in nursing homes have that C. difficile stuff in them. They don't, they're not suffering from it. It's kept, it's managed. But that's why there is such a huge amount of that going on in nursing homes is because they take antibiotics. They're in there for something else. They get sick. And so that was like, was it right about 70 percent? Yeah, like that? that's that's about right. It's certainly over half. And they so they harbor this pathogen. And again, it doesn't cause disease right. um, in most individuals. But as soon as you take antibiotics, it has this window of opportunity where it can take over and wreak havoc on your gastrointestinal tract. So, all right, <laughs> got to we'll, we'll skip around a little bit because I'm, this is the one thing I, I'm kind of looking for in the book and everything else is, you know, we hear about probiotics. You go to Costco or you go anywhere, you know, Whole Foods, and and you hear about probiotics. You can get probiotic milk. You can get probiotic just drinks. I was at Costco the other day, just like these big things of juice that are probiotic. What does that mean, and how much of it do we need? Yeah, so um, you know. Probiotics are interesting. So these, it's formally defined a probiotic as a, um, a live microbe that you consume. And if you take it in adequate amounts, it'll confer a health benefit on you. But most 
commercial products don't actually meet that formal definition. It doesn't mean that they don't do good things, but it means that they haven't been studied in great detail. And there are certainly some products out there that are um, not quality products, and that's because the um, supplement industry is not regulated very closely. And so you have to be very clo- you have to be very careful when something's labeled probiotic. But these probiotic organisms are different than the resident microbes. They actually pass through the digestive tract. They don't take up residence. They're transient members of this community, but they still can have a positive impact. They can help us um, our, uh, fight off respiratory in- infections. It looks like they interact with the immune system. The mechanisms are not really well understood, but um, we really recommend that people try to get probiotic type organisms every day. And we really like trying to get them through fermented foods. Um, So things like yogurt and kefir and kimchi and sauerkraut are teeming with live microbes that play a vital role transiting through the system and helping regulate everything. How do they stay alive? I mean, that's the thing I, I wonder about this. I mean, so in the refrigerator, they're, they're kept alive, but you can also take them in capsule form. So, I mean, I can't imagine that they're just, I mean, unless they're like sea monkeys or something where, right. you know, they just stay around in, in powder form forever. Yeah, so they they don't stay around forever. They'll stay around usually for a while in powder form if you um, dry freeze them, and that's how a lot of the supplement manufacturers prepare them. Um, but certainly they do better if they're refrigerated and in something like yogurt and kefir. Um, but over time, they will die off, and so you need to be very careful that whatever you're buying has a use-by date and um, even better, a number of live organisms that they guarantee by a certain date. You talk about in the book how there, there's somewhere around a thousand different species that are going on there. Yours, I'm, I'm imagining, tell me if I'm wrong, that yours are going to be different than mine, what I need and what you need. You know, my taking probiotics, the same package that you would, or the same couple of teaspoonfuls of, of uh, kimchi or, or sauerkraut, do, I, do we both need the same thing? Yeah, very good question. And this is one of the really both hot topics and difficult things to study about the microbiota is, and you're exactly right, everybody's microbiota is slightly different than the next person. However, when you look at the gut microbiota, there are general attributes or functions and members that are common between individuals. And so we can learn about the microbiota and make some generalizations, but it does mean that, for instance, a probiotic that works well for me may not necessarily work well for you. And in the book, we talk about ways people can go through trial and error trying to isolate the right products that that work well for their system. So what's happened over years or over centuries our microbiota has changed, right? I mean, we used to have a lot more, and you talk about some primitive tribes out in the in the bush that have more and different ones than we do. And so what's, you know, we seem generally to be a relatively healthy species. Well, yeah, I, I agree. We, we certainly have, have done a lot to rid ourselves of infectious disease, extend our lifespan. Um, one thing that's really alarming in the Western world is this increase in Western diseases, uh, things like cancer, heart disease. Some of these are certainly unmasked by our longer lifespan, but there are things like allergies, asthma, childhood Crohn's disease that simply aren't present in these traditional societies. And you're right, they have much more diverse microbiotas. They haven't been exposed to as many antibiotics. They eat fiber-rich diets, and it turns out that dietary fiber is what 
fuels this community. Many of these hunter-gatherers um, eat on the order of 10 times as much dietary fiber as Westerners do, up around 100 grams per day. Wow. And, and so we're actually starving our microbial community by eating processed foods and foods low in fiber. And we think this is meaningful both for the deterioration of this community and also for the long-term negative impact on our health. Talking with Justin Sonnenberg, who is the co-author with Erica Sonnenberg of The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll keep talking to Justin about a lot of other good stuff. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father, by the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the US and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the US Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braun. If you're just joining us, talking with Justin Sonnenberg, who's the co-author with Erica Sonnenberg of The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. Talk a little bit about um, C-sections and, and how this affects. I, I just finished a, a major revision on a book of mine on, uh, on pregnancy and childbirth. It's mostly aimed at dads. And talked about this a little bit without having actually before I had read your book that there seems to be an some an influence in certain, an increase in certain types of of baby conditions and and later on adult conditions among people who were born by C-section as opposed to those who got squeezed through and were exposed to I guess their mother's bacteria. Talk about that. I think it's just really fascinating. And you talk about your 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 kids were born. C section, you're kind of wondering about whether some of their issues are related to that. Absolutely. We were hoping for a natural childbirth and ended up after 24 hours of, hours of labor with our first daughter in an emergency C section. And she actually went on to be on IV antibiotics for the first 48 hours of her life, an absolute nightmare scenario for somebody that studies them with yeah. gut microbiota. <laughs> um, but sometimes you can't avoid these situations. But but yeah, this question of C sections is really interesting. So we're, we're um, sterile for the most part in the womb. When we're born into this world, we um, our gut is colonized rapidly by the first microbes that we encounter. And then over the first year, there's this complex assembly process of the gut microbiota. And what we know is that a baby born by C-section over the first few days of life, the gut microbiota looks like a skin microbiota rather than a vaginal and gut microbiota as a, a baby that's born 
through the birth canal. So really, the microbes that colonize the gut during those first few days are very different in C-section babies and babies born uh, vaginally. And this may provide a, r a really nice hint as to why these babies go on and have different um, probabilities of getting things like as having things like aller allergies and asthma. So I want to go back to mucus on the on the inside of the intestines. So y you talk about how some of the microbiota, the changes that are going on in there, and some of the food that you're eating, and, and sugar in particular was one we were talking about on the elevator on the way up here, uh, kind of breaks down that mucus and allows again the stuff to get out that shouldn't be out. That's that's exactly right. So the mucus plays a really important barrier role. And um, what's interesting about the mucus is that it's also a rich source of carbohydrates. And so the the bacteria that live in the gut actually prefer, by and large, to eat dietary fiber, the type of um, plant material that you might consume in a salad or with broccoli, um, whole grains, legumes, things like that. But if you're not eating that type of food, your gut microbiota switches over and it starts eating you. It starts eating your mucus because that's the only carbohydrate that's available. And over time, this has the possibility of thinning that mucus and breaking down that important immunological barrier. So not a very good scene. No, <laughs> apparently not. All right, so give us some, some practical steps. I think we kind of got a good lay of the land here a little bit. So what can, can we do as, as average people who are not going to go and spend every cent we have on, on probiotic stuff at, at Whole Foods? You know, what do we need to do for our diet to keep ourselves healthy and then to, to possibly ward off some of the problems that we're experiencing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think as an adult, there are some concrete steps. One other thing that I want to say about child rearing, the other really important part of nurturing a healthy microbiota is breastfeeding. It turns out that um, the third most abundant compound in breast milk is a class of compounds called human milk oligosaccharides, these complex carbohydrates. And they're third as, you know, really abundant, right behind fat and lactose, two things that we've all heard about. But it turns out the baby can't digest these complex carbohydrates. And so the question was, why would a mother go to such great effort to put these into her breast milk? Well, it turns out the, the mother is providing dietary fiber to her baby's gut microbes. These are wow. complex carbohydrates that the mother puts into her breast milk to help assemble a healthy microbiota. And it probably speaks to the importance of assembling a really healthy microbiota early in life for the fitness of our species. Right. So we should make just make sure that sh the mother is not putting them in there. They're, that's happening exactly. by itself. I mean, that's, it's not that's, some... That's the forces okay. of evolution. Have, right. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so I didn't want to put pressure on no, mothers no. to go okay. off and buy stuff to put into their milk. Absolutely they, not. Right. These naturally occur, and so breastfeed, they, but they can't mimic the structures of these in infant formula. So infant formula is deficient in this class of compounds that's so important right. for the gut microbiota. Now you talked about the difference between the transient probiotics and the kinds that have taken up residence and are, are there in our in our gut. So how does that work exactly? I mean, how are we are we getting the stuff that's living there? How how does that come into so us? It all, yeah, it all comes in orally. It comes in through our mouth, and um, a lot of it comes in as we're born, but then over the course of the first year, things we're exposed to, um, we, we end up acquiring new microbes that end up taking up residence. And so we gradually acquire this diversity, 
But a major problem in our Western world right now is that we're so hygienic and it's been great for limiting infectious disease, but it's really limited the, our exposure to important environmental microbes that could take up residence in our gut. And so one of the pieces of advice that I love to give to parents is stop being so crazy clean and worried about cleanliness and sanitizing everything. Let your kids go out in nature, let them garden, let them play in the yard and pet a dog yeah. and get a little bit dirty. You want to be careful. We still have our kids wash their hands during cold and flu season. We, if we come off a subway or a, you know, a public, <laughs> you know, a grocery store, we still yeah. are, are clean. So you have to be smart about it. But it's certainly important to come into contact with more microbes because these are what determine the diversity right. in your gut microbiome. You know, we probably all know. I mean, anybody who's had a kid who's gone through daycare, for example, you, could, you sort of know, and people laugh about it. Well, you know, the daycare kids come home with every conceivable disease, but they end up with the stronger immune system than the kids who are, are cared for just at home by with one person for exactly that reason. They're not eating dirt, basically. Yeah, exactly. So eating d dirt is a good thing. And I think a lot of people think about it in the context of getting um, other little infections, colds um, that you may get uh, through being in daycare. But there's this other process that's occurring simultaneously. As you're getting exposed to those viruses, you're also getting exposed to beneficial microbes that can increase the diversity in your microbiota. Right. And so this has kind of been on the war path about this for a long time, so people have heard me say it before, but so you stop with the antibacterial soaps unless, I mean, if, unless you have some really bad thing like, like you're talking about getting off a subway or whatever. Exactly right, yeah. We have no antibacterial soaps in our household, and, and we have a, a dog that, that we, you know, pet before meals without <laughs> washing our hands just to make sure that we have enough microbes. Oh, so that, that right there is going to make my mother scream. Right. Like, like, yeah, wash your hands after the dog. Yeah, right. Okay. It's so ingrained. And right. that's, I mean, there's so many parts that we learn about parenting that it's now counterintuitive to think that we have to take, you know, the opposite steps to nurture a healthy microbiota. But there's this new awareness of this really important microbial community that lives within us that we have to start thinking about and nurturing. Is there anything, one, one step that we can take? Talked about fermented foods, but just a, a general path you can set us on towards the right right direction. Yeah, without a doubt, the, the, all the research in the field is just screaming that diet is the most important thing when it comes to the gut microbiota and dietary fiber. And this is really difficult to get kids to eat, especially kids, to eat a lot of dietary fiber because this is, you know, beans and um, vegetables, but um, we really look at it in our household almost like putting on a seatbelt or going to bed at a reasonable hour. It's just part of raising a healthy child, and you have to really push your child. You can also educate them and say you have this pet inside of you that you're taking mm. care of. You have to feed your gut microbes, and if you don't eat that broccoli, you're not going to be feeding your, your pet, and it's going to starve. Well, for those of us who like to think in terms of grams and servings and stuff like that, how, how much do kids need and roughly and then how much should adults be getting? Yeah, so um, for kids, I think the recommendation is somewhere around 20 grams of fiber per day, and then it goes up based on caloric intake. So um, adults, it's typically between 28 and 38 to 40, depending upon um, how many calories you take in. But it sounds like that's way low. I mean, you're talking about the, the guys who are taking 100 a, 100 a day. 
It, it is, and it speaks to still our ignorance about what the optimal amount of fiber is. But most Americans right now, on average, are getting 15 grams of fiber per day. And so if you go to the Harvard School of Public Health, the Mayo website, all of these places are saying Americans need to eat more fiber. That's very clear. We don't know how much is too much, but you can right. probably max the possible amount that you can get in the Western world, get up around, you know, 50, 100 grams per day and you'd be fine. Well, you're going to start having some stomach problems if you have too well, much, you, right? You certainly have to ramp slowly, but if you look at these traditional hunter-gatherer populations that have to live on roughage, on plant material primarily, they consume 100 to 150 grams of dietary fiber per day and don't experience bloating or diarrhea or any problems like that. They have larger stools. They pass more stools. This was noted in the 1970s by a famous surgeon called Dennis Burkett. He said, America is a constipated nation. If you pass small stools, you have to have large hospitals. <laughs> Great. All right. Justin Sonnenberg, co-author with Erica Sonnenberg of The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and let's talk toys a little bit here. Summer is pretty much underway, and we're seeing a lot more toys coming in that are designed to be used outside or that are supposed to replicate some aspect of the great outdoors. This week, I want to take a look at a few that fit into one category or the other, all from one of our favorite manufacturers, Playmobil. Let's start with the summer fun Ferris wheel with lights. There's nothing like waiting in a line for an amusement park ride to remind you that this is summer. With this large set, your kids can have the joy, okay, the misery, of standing in lines, but without having to lather up with sunscreen or put on a hat. The 117-piece set comes with seven two-seater gondolas, a functioning Ferris wheel, a ticket office, complete with the cash register and tickets, flashing lights, batteries are not included though, and quite a few other accessories. It also comes with two adult figures, and two child figures so your little one can make someone else, even if that someone is inanimate, feel the sting of waiting in line and then when you finally get to the front, being told that you're too short to ride. Once all the seats are full, turn the crank and you're off. The wheel can operate automatically, but you'll need to buy the electric ride motor, which is sold separately. The Summer Fun Ferris Wheel with Lights costs $79.99, and again, all of these we're going to be talking about this week are at Playmobil.com, and there's no E at the end of Playmobil. City Action Rescue Boat. The Coast Guard has a bit of an identity crisis. It started off as part of the Department of Treasury and then got transferred over to the Department of Transportation, and now it's under the Department of Homeland Security. They're also considered a branch of the military. But whoever they are, they do a great job of protecting our coasts and waterways. With the City Action Rescue Boat, your child can give the Coast Guard the respect they deserve, honoring them as they rescue drowning swimmers and battle pirates and take on other rescue operations. 
They can even put out fires or squirt the cat with the included plunger. This set includes the boat itself, three figures, a first aid kit, hoses, a rescue ring, and more. And it costs $52.95, and it's for ages 4 to 10. City Action Coast Guard Station with Lighthouse. These Coast Guard heroes need to go somewhere at the end of a long, danger-filled day, right? And nothing could be better than their own station, complete with a functioning lighthouse and an observation room where the duty officers can keep a close eye on the coast and dispatch rescue crews as needed. The set comes with everything you and the kids could need to create amazing adventures together. It's got a boat, five Playmobil figures who love to wait in line for the Ferris wheel on their day off, rescue rings, a full set of scuba gear, loads of medical and safety equipment, a cable winch to haul boats out of the water, and a lot more. Costs $79.95, and it's aimed at kids 4 to 10. Then there's the Sports and Action Speed Glider. At some point, pretending to be outdoors needs to give way to the real thing. And this sleek glider is the perfect way to encourage kids, and you too, to stretch those legs. Just assemble it, which will take about a minute, and you're ready for a really fun game of catch or a long-distance throwing competition. As long as the pilot is in his seat, and that's the pilot that comes with it, he really needs to be there to balance the aircraft, the glider is very easy to throw, even for young kids. And with working LED lights, there's no reason for the fun to stop when the sun goes down. Just keep right on going because you can see it in the dark. It's $26.99, and it's aimed for a little bit older audience than the ones we've been talking about, aimed at ages 6 to 14. You can get a lot more toy reviews and game reviews and all sorts of other reviews at parentsatplay.com. That's our website. You can drop us a line through there as well, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment, depending on which week it is. But don't go quite yet, because there's a lot more positive parenting coming up right ahead. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. In recent decades, America has been waging a veritable war on fat 
in which not just public health authorities, but every sector of society is engaged in constant fat talk aimed at educating and badgering and ridiculing heavy people into shedding those extra pounds. We hear a lot about the dangers of fatness to the nation, but very little about the dangers of today's epidemic of fat talk to individuals and society at large. The human trauma that's caused by the war on fat is rather disturbing, and it has been virtually unexplored. So how do those who don't fit the ideal body type feel about being the object of abuse or discrimination or even revulsion? And how do people feel about being told that they're a burden on the healthcare system for having a BMI outside what's deemed, and there's very little scientific evidence to support it, healthy? And how do young people who are already prone to self-doubt about their bodies withstand the daily assault on their body type and their sense of self-worth? In this part of today's show, we're going to be answering those and a lot of other questions with Susan Greenhall, who's an anthropologist and an expert in this area. And she's going to talk us through how obesity has come to remake who we are as a nation. And she's got some great suggestions on how we might work to reverse course for the next generation. It all starts when our show continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the MrDad.com radio network. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Susan Greenhall, who's the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, I long before I picked up this book, I have thought about the way that we kind of deal with fat people in in our culture and wondered about whether it's the next kind of smoking in a way that that we've we've taken a very harsh stand on smoking. You can't smoke inside. You can't smoke outside within a certain number of feet of a door. And I keep thinking, is there going to be somebody who, like a grocery store clerk, who's not going to let an overweight person buy something that has trans fats? I mean, are are we going to get to that sort of point Well, I think we're already there. It's so interesting that you do this analogy because the individual who first devised the term, offered the term war on obesity, was none other than C. Everett Koop, the former Surgeon General back in the 1980s, who was so instrumental in launching and successfully carrying out the war on tobacco. But these days, the kind of talk around obesity, the talk that all of us engage in all the time, trying to get people to to eat better, to exercise more, constantly criticize and warning and nagging people. It amounts to the same kind of rules, I think, that are in place, informal rules and also increasingly organizational rules in place around smoking. And I'm guessing that because of the nature of the book, and you're talking about the human cost of America's war on fat, that you're not a big fan of that, that you don't, you don't appreciate the, the analogy between smoking and, and overweight. Well, I definitely accept 
that at very heavy weights, obesity poses serious health problems. For people who are on the upper levels of obesity, there are lots of health issues that need to be attended to. So I don't want to lose, lose sight of that. But what my work does is it focuses primarily on kids because this war on fat was launched, it was formally launched in around 2001. And for young people who were born from around 1990 on, their entire lives, they've heard the message that fat is bad, thin is always good, dieting is always good, and exercising is always good. And for those of us who grew up earlier, we know that there are other kinds of messages around weight. But what happened is weight is now considered um, uh, overweight and obesity are now considered diseases. So kids have that pressure on top of them, too. Well, and there's so much pressure coming the other direction, though. I mean, there's there, there's this desire that a lot of parents have, and I think uh, other people other than parents, about wanting to have your children have positive self-esteem. And so we want to tell our kids that they're fine the way they are. And at the same time, there's this issue that you just mentioned, which is that there are some pretty serious issues having to do or serious problems that can come up with that, with being overweight. So how do we manage that between you're, you're beautiful, you're wonderful just the way you are, but you know what, you're killing yourself? Parents are really put an impossible bind on this issue. And so far, as in so many other areas, moms have been considered primarily responsible. And moms in this country, they're charged with producing perfect kids in terms of weight that's thin, fit children. And it's simply an impossible assignment um, because parents don't have anywhere near as much control over their kids' weight as people think they do. This is what I call a biomass. One thing I'd like your listeners to, to think about, to pay more attention to, is a set of ideas that kind of circulate in popular culture, a set of ideas most of us have around weight and weight control that really are scientifically suspect, that the medical field itself doesn't expect, but yet we all continue to reproduce. The main, the main idea is the notion that every one of us can lose weight if we just diet and exercise enough. In other words, if we don't lose weight, it's our fault. Right. Another one of these ideas, I call it a biomyth, is the notion that parents can control their kids' weight. And any parent knows that that's simply not true. So in re a third one is that even though we think we can control our weight, as a matter of fact, the medical field has not yet come up with any ways that help the majority of us lose weight and keep it off any safe, reliable ways to keep weight off. So parents are in a bind because they want to, they want to create positive self-esteem for the kids, and yet if you tell kids they're okay, then they're not going to pay enough attention to their weight. I was really intrigued. You mentioned the word control. Parents cannot control. And I know from talking to a lot of people about eating disorders, particularly on the way other end of the scale of anorexia and bulimia, that that is in some ways the way that kids can control something that their parents are, that, you know, that's the only thing in their life they can control. And I'm wondering, do you ever consider, or does anybody ever consider, obesity to be an eating disorder as opposed to, you know, something else? I'm so glad you asked that because one of the things that I begin to talk about in this book but that I've been working on more since the book came out is the fact that with this war on fat, there's 
so much pressure on kids to lose weight that disordered eating is completely normalized. Kids who have a few extra pounds are expected to engage in disordered eating, self-starvation, living only on fruit, things like that. And what my work shows, what these narratives about these young people in Southern California show is that disordered eating can easily slip into an eating disorder. And so even though obesity and eating disorders like anorexia seem like they're the opposite ends of the continuum, as a matter of fact, they're on the same continuum and the same kinds of troubles emotional troubles, excessive pressure around weight lead to both kinds of problems. I think that the public health community and the American public need to pay a lot more attention to the connections of those. And what happened in the stories that I gathered, the young people, especially since since eating disorders, of course they affect boys and girls, but they affect girls more than boys. So young people and their parents have really been educated about eating disorders. What they think, with all these horrible images that we see, if a model or another celebrity develops an eating disorder, those images are often used for educational purposes. So young people think, oh, that's an eating disorder, that's something horrible. I understand that, I'm never gonna get that. Meantime, they're starving themselves they're exercising three hours a week. In short, they're on their way to getting an eating disorder without even realizing it. There's an amazing overlap and amazing slippage. Now, I want you to talk just a little bit because you know, most of the people that we have on the show who talk about nutrition and, and eating and weight issues are nutritionists and pediatricians. You're coming at this from a very different perspective as an anthropologist. How did, how did this work its way into your interest yeah, I actually, so for many years I taught a course at the University of California, Irvine, an anthropology course I called The Woman and the Body. And a few years ago, I had the idea that I could offer to really make the point about how weight is so important. I offered my students extra credit for writing an essay on diet, weight, and the BMI in everyday life. And first of all, 50% of the kids in a class of 300 wrote essays which is quite remarkable. How often do college students want to do extra work? But what was really astonishing is what they wrote about. These were stories of happy childhoods abruptly ended by a diagnosis of overweight or obesity, a diagnosis either in a fitness test at school or through a doctor's visit, or there were kids whose lives just sort of slowly came apart by this growing accumulation of weight bullying. And for these kids, their lives just became this struggle to shed pounds, like a daily torment because they weren't able to lose weight, even though they were constantly being pressured to do so. So there's just so much shame around being overweight in our culture because people treat it as a, a moral issue that these kinds of stories about the personal distress around being overweight and being bullied, they have not been part of the public conversation about obesity. The, the public conversation is all about how the obesity epidemic is harming the nation by raising health care costs and worsening health and lowering economic productivity. And this piece of the, of the story 
which is how the war on fat itself is actually harming young people in many ways and harming family too, families too. That has not been part of the conversation. So that's why right. I decided to write this book. We're talking with Susan Greenhall, who's the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Susan Greenhall. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark, and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ag Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Susan Greenhall, who's the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. Susan, I want, I want to, I guess, go into a little bit of, of hypothetical space in, in a way and have you tell us how would things look in the world if, if we were to resolve this issue to your satisfaction? At the same time, though, making sure that, that kids are having some freedoms in their life and having some control over their life, but are also being encouraged to be healthy. So what, what would we be doing as a culture? Well, for parents, I think it's really important. What this book adds is the social fact that for kids, the message about weight is absolutely ubiquitous. They cannot escape it. It's everywhere. It's in the media. It's at their schools. It's in their sports teams. It's in the doctor's office. So I would like to see a world in which parents back off on the weight issue. It's already so sensitive that whatever a parent can add in terms of emphasizing weight is going to be harmful rather than helpful. That's what all these stories that I collected, about 250 in all, what they show. On the other hand, it's really important to create very helpful environments for kids as kids are growing up. And so parents, of course, can do that by by modeling the kind of behavior that they would like to see their kids have. And just by having healthful food in the home and encouraging kids to, to ha- engage in healthy exercise, um, healthy, happy exercise, that would be the way to go. A third thing I'd like to urge parents is to really know the science better than people get get beneath what I call the biomyth and realize that none of us has much control of our weight. In fact, weight is, is something like 60-70% inherited, and we all think we can control our weight, but basically weight's largely determined by genetics and secondly by environment, and then a lesser extent um, by, uh, by our own activities. But, you well, know, but we're can't, have can't people... Can't people go on diets or get on a, a really a particularly vigorous exercise routine and consciously take a, make a choice? I mean, there was a guy I actually just read about. I can't remember his name now, but he lost something like 600 pounds. I mean, he was one of these people who, who looked, he couldn't move. He couldn't move at all. He was in bed, and he was just taking up the entire thing. And then he had, uh, I think... He had the, surgery, right? He had surgery, and he lost... 600 pounds, and then I think they were saying that he had, it sounded really horrible, but had something like 100 pounds of skin 
that needed right. to be ta- they needed to be taken off, and he'd lose another hundred pounds. But I mean, so that's a conscious decision to to overcome what clearly must have been some sort of a biological issue. Absolutely, he was called the saddest man in the world, and your heart just goes out to him. I think he was much more than six hundred pounds, and he went through a very major, major surgery, bariatric surgery, and then was left, as you say, with all those skin folds. Um, So in his case, that kind of procedure seems really called for and very helpful. For the majority of us, some of us are are born with um, sort of genetically predisposed to be rather slender, and we can gain weight by eating too much, but we can lose it pretty easily. For most people, though, most people will tend to gain weight in our environment, which is full of all sorts of fatty foods and in many ways discourages us from exercising. The fact is most people are able to lose weight if they diet and exercise, but very few people can keep it off. So what the research shows is the vast majority, something like 95% of people, put the weight back on after they lose weight. And um, the body fights weight loss biologically predisposed to fight weight loss so that something like two-thirds of people who lose weight and put it back on again, they put on more than they even lost. So yes, some people are able to lose weight and keep it off, but what they need to do is go on sort of lifelong restrictive diets. And in that way, every day watching your diet, every day eating less than you would like. Now, what do you do about parents who are kind of looking at their kids through rose-colored glasses, if you will? I mean, I've actually looked at some studies on this, is that overweight parents tend not to see their kids as overweight, and they tend not to encourage healthy behavior because they look at the, the kinds of freakish stories that we see on TV sometimes, and they say, well, my goodness, my kid is not like that, so my kid is not overweight, really. But how do we educate parents about what a healthy life or healthy weight is for a child? You know, I was speaking the other day to um, a man, he's a health professional, who runs the one of the most influential obesity blogs. He writes it like four times a week. I was speaking with him the other day, and his view is that parents know it's very hard to miss the public health messages. They're everywhere. Parents have a hard time if the kids are a little chunky. Hard time accepting that emotionally because it reflects on them. It suggests that maybe they too, that is the parents, are overweight and they may have genetically um, contributed to their kids' heaviness. So I suspect that most parents know, and I also believe that badgering kids about their weight is always going to be harmful. Now, you mentioned that moms are the ones who are kind of held responsible in a way for a lot of the a lot of the weight issues, and I can I can see that. I mean, I can see that. I think my mother has always been somebody who at restaurants will order a diet drink of some kind, and, and I didn't really realize that that was an issue until I noticed my six-year-old daughter ordering a diet drink also. I thought, well, just that's just, I mean, they shouldn't have any sugar at all at that at that age or any pretty much any other age, but, you know, the, the idea that just that girls should be ordering diet drinks. But, you know, what do you, what do you suggest that dads can do? Do they have a different role to play here? 
Well, it's very interesting. There's similar roles as moms, and it's great to sort of even the um, responsibility so both dads and moms consider this an issue that they want to work on. But historically, the research has emphasized moms exclusively. And it's fascinating. Very new research, including some just published this month, shows that dads have critically important uh, influences on kids' weight. For example, it turns out that father's weight status is more predictive of their kids than mother's is. Really? <laughs> yeah. And there's also what's called the epigenetic transmission of obesity, which is to say that conditions affecting father's health can alter the genes that he passes on to their kids. And fathers, of course, have genetic contributions, roughly 50% um, to their kids. So in all those ways, fathers have important influence. But in terms of what dads can do, it's pretty much the same thing that moms can do, which is you know, quietly help to ensure um, a household that, that offers healthy food and encourages good exercise without making too much of a big deal if your kid gains extra weight. Because your kid's going to hear about it from the doctor, from the teacher, from the coach, everywhere. Parent doesn't also need to add his or her voice. Let's talk about a little bit what's going on on your website. You mentioned that you have interviewed at least a couple hundred people at least, and you've got all these stories, and there's quite a few of them, some, some of them really rather poignant in the book. And that you said it's available on the website. What What's there? Right. And what is the website, first of all? The, it, right. People who are interested, if they don't want to buy the book, they can or at least first go to www.fattalknation.com. So I've uploaded a number of stories there so people can see the kinds of narratives that are there. And again, this wasn't interview data because people are very reluctant to talk about these issues. They're so full of shame around their weight. So it's personal stories that people wrote out themselves in their own, in their very own words. And by the way, I forgot to mention that it's not just heavy kids who suffer from all the fat talk in their lives. It's also kids normal weight, underweight, um, obese, and, and overweight. Everybody that I worked with was miserable about their bodies. So one thing they can do, they can find stories. They can also upload their own fat talk. Because hmm. one thing I want to do is encourage people to listen to the way they communicate with others. Even I, I often catch myself talking to other people about their weight. It's just become such a normal way of communicating with people. We might even say, oh, wow, you look so great. Did you lose weight? Hmm. I've got that, you know, that suit looks so good on you. You must have, like, lost a few pounds. You know, that kind of, that kind of conversation is also fat talk. Right. And believe right. it or not, it can be just as damaging as, oh, my God, you should not be eating that muffin. You look so <laughs> fat today. All right. Both of them are damaging because what they do is they call they they define our weight as the most important thing that people should notice about us. And when everybody in your world is telling you you're too fat or you're too thin, you're constantly getting the message that there's something wrong about you and everybody naturally tries whatever is in their power to change that weight. Right. Susan Greenhall is the author of Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat. Susan, really interesting. Thanks very much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.